Here we go, here we go. I'll try to start on time and end on time because I know uh, everything's still. You have kids from Sunday school and other things to be doing. So uh, stop where you are, let's pray. And then while we work through a couple of things, you can, um, you, know, you can get settled in. Here we go. Um, Almighty and everlasting God, who through your Son has given us forgiveness of sins and delivered us from eternal death, Strengthen us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, that we may daily increase in faith and hold fast to the hope that we shall not die, but be raised again with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In his holy name we pray. Amen. Uh, okay, a couple of things. Um, thanks for carrying on. There should be uh, handouts in the back last week and this week. Um, Peter, is there, is there a... Uh, is the... Attendance clipboard back there. Do we just send that around? This is going to go to Voice of Care, Don Kretschmar's group. If you got <laughs> if you got an extra dollar, toss it in. It'll go all the way back around to Carol Heidorn. We'll make sure that it gets to him. So that's good. Um, thanks for indulging uh, the incense experiment. I talked to a couple of you. Um, it did. It went awry just a little bit. What we were aiming for is just the visual and not the smell, but we got more than we bargained for. So. You know, we'll try to work on that a little bit. What we want to try to do is find a happy medium where everybody sort of gets what they want. It's difficult, but we're working at it. And the only way to kind of do it is to watch it in real time and see what happens. So um, to you who are sensitive to it, less and less will be the mantra. We won't go every time. We just need to do it a couple times to see which way the wind's going to blow. I can tell you already, though, the wind in the sanctuary seems to blow from, as you're looking at the altar, from this side to this side. So from your right to your left. So if you're sensitive to it, if you kind of sit right and back, you know, kind of right and back, um, if you split wide right, that's where it's, there's least, uh, it kind of blows across. But you should let me know, especially if you're sensitive to it, where you're sitting and if it gets to you. This is true for sound. It's true for that. It's true for everything. The other thing is um, we, we think we have the Holy Supper figured out. Now if we can just execute it. I'll tell you so you can help the ushers. Basically, 50 people go, and when the pastor goes back past the um, back chapel, another 50 people go. If we always go in 50s, it'll work out. So just kind of think to yourself, if you're standing up and walking, you should be in a group of 50. Because 50 is about once around. So 50, 50, 50, and then we won't, uh, we won't have kind of blank spots. But we're working at that, too. Everybody's working hard. I mean, everybody's trying to figure out... And we're still all experimenting, not quite sure where we're going to go. So anyway, thanks for the indulgence. Um, you can interrupt me with questions anytime you want, but in the way of pictures being worth a thousand words, that's exactly what we were aiming for when we got the font. That was the first night, and that was completely unscripted. But that is exactly, that's exactly what we were hoping for, which is from little on, somebody will come and very reverently just say, that's my spot. And so, you, you know, you spend your life teaching kids what happened there. First it's water, and then it's water on me, and then it's water on me with the name, and then it's water for salvation, and then it's water for, um, as Luther says, for penance, for going to confession, and then it's water uh, for making me part of the community. It's water for all those things. But <clears throat> there's so many other ways to teach than talking, and, uh, you know, for the last 300 years or so, all of Western culture has been all about talking. It's been a big information dump. We sort of cut the top of your head off and we just dump stuff in. There's many other ways to learn. There's many other ways to be aware. There's many other ways to think. 
Now, that doesn't mean you know talking isn't valuable. It doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that thinking isn't valuable. Of course, they are. But it's only one part of you as a human being. And when you come here, you know what we're trying to say is that God loves the whole, all that you are. He loves the way you hear. He loves the way you smell. He loves the way you touch. He loves the way you think. And he's redeemed all those things. He's, he's redeemed you flesh and blood, mind, body, and soul. He's redeemed all those things. And he wants to use every last piece of you. But that has to start somewhere. And one of the ways um, of things being attractive is if they are interesting, if they're beautiful, if they're helpful. And so, I mean, that is just like the perfect... You know, that is exactly, it could not have been better. That's exactly what we wanted, which is, what's cooking here, you know? And you got, um, you know, you got opportunities galore when that kind of thing happens. Um, And as I said last week, if you see kids touching the water, let them touch. You know, obviously we don't want them splashing. And there was a girl who did, uh, right as her mom was standing there last week, put her whole arm in up to her elbow, sweater and blouse, whole thing. And I'm just like... Lady, you got to watch your kids. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I know them, so they were. I mean, she was fine with it, but it's you know, it's going to happen. But it's better that it happens, and then we got something to talk about. So anyway, that's um, what we're aiming at. Uh, just any questions about last week? Any of the stuff that was? I know I was clipping along. Part of the reason I'm clipping along is because I actually know that you know a lot, and really the point of what we're doing is to say, all the stuff that you know, we tried to pack in there so that you'd never forget it, or so that you'd be reminded of it. So um, that's, the, that's kind of the goal. So um, the sheet from last week, number one. Uh, here we go. What, what were we doing in there? Well, there's only one story in Scripture, and that's a story from death and resurrection. And what we want to be able to do is see Jesus everywhere, okay? That was, the, that was point one. The Christian faith has just one object, the mystery of Jesus Christ, dead and risen, that's your reality, too. <clears throat> so then you say to yourself, as you're trying to build a space, now we don't have an extravagant amount of money, so how can we, what's the best we can do? So when, way back when we're thinking five years ago, what's the best we can do? We say to ourselves, how can we get to that? That's what we're aiming at, how do we get to that? But of course, when you're thinking about that, you don't know how you're going to get to that. And, you know, it's doubly so because you can't make a mistake with other people's money. I was always such the great press, you know, of being, you know, a pastor, a governing board, even a congregation. When you're using somebody else's money, I mean, it's one thing to lose your own money or make a mistake with your own money, to make a mistake with other people's money. So I can just tell you, there was much fear and trepidation and a lot of checking things out and thinking things through because if something goes wrong and that turns into a big blob that doesn't work, that's really not a good thing, Okay. So then on the next page, I tried to remind you, this would be points three and four, <laughs> that baptism is something divine. And over the years, one of the things I've learned is how important that is. Um, all your questions about, do I get rebaptized? Do I get baptized again? I was baptized when I was a baby. That doesn't count. I need to be in charge of my baptism. All of those questions, all of the questions about baptism come down to this single question. Did Jesus baptize you, or did you baptize yourself? That's the simple question that sorts it all out. That sorts out all the questions about adult baptism, about rebaptism. You could put the question like this. You were dead as a little baby, and in the NICU, in the neonatal intensive care unit, somebody brought you back to life. Now, did that count? Did it really happen? Was it really done to you? Because if you really are dead... 
It's not about what you do, it's about what somebody does to you. And so the great confession of the church has always been, you're a sinner, and unless Jesus comes, and you can't change yourself. This is what the Reformation was fought over. I don't know if you saw this week. Um, I don't know if you keep up on this news. Did you see that the Pope went to the monastery in Erfurt, where Luther was a monk, and he gave a talk, and the point of the talk was, Luther got it right, and we should all pay attention to Luther. Did you catch it? You should go read it. It's extraordinarily interesting. He basically said, Luther asked the question, how do I know God is gracious? Which we completely agree with. That's the single question of Luther. How do I know God is gracious? And he said, the problem with theology over the last three or four hundred years is it's been too much philosophy and not enough grace. I mean, that is the Lutheran party line, just so you know. So to have the Pope go to Germany to go to Luther's monastery and say Luther was right, that's a game changer in many ways. Now, who knows how that's going to play out, but I'm just saying to you, for all of you who have been waiting 500 years for a concession, you got it last <laughs> week. You know, try not to press him to give you more right now. Uh, you know, his pockets are empty, I'm sure. But that was quite a, if you can pull it up, I mean, pull it up and read it. It's quite a remarkable thing when the Pope says Luther got it right. That's you know, it's a stunner. Um, okay, so the point is, everybody needs grace. Where do you get grace? You get grace in the font. Jesus gives you grace in the font. It's a divine act. And so I gave you that from the large catechism. I've tried to give you um, a lot of stuff. The scripture part I'm going to presume from you because we've talked for so many years about the scriptural parts of baptism in so many venues. But now I'm trying to give you the Lutheran confessions which say this is the Lutheran stuff. So baptism is divine water. So your whole point of your, your life in the church, my life in the church, is to teach her that that water that's going over her fingers right now is special. That's divine water. Why is it divine? Because Jesus swims in that water. How do you get in that water? I mean, you know the ichthus thing that you all have in the back of your cars, the little fishy thing? You know where that comes from. That's from Irenaeus, who wrote in the second century, Jesus is the big fish, and we all swim after him like little fishies in the font. And that's an ancient, ancient thing. That's not something that just you know, popped up on wheat and you know, grocery shelves you know, 50 years ago. The whole notion of ichthus, of being the fish, of that being the secret sign, it's not just because you can you know, say um, Jesus is God and you can, there's a, there's a, um, you know, the initials work out so you can, you can say you know, Jesus is God and man. Okay, it wasn't just that. The point was Jesus is the big fishy and we're the little fish. And then Irenaeus says, stay in the water. Stay near the water. Never leave your baptism. 1,500 years later, Luther is saying, Jesus is the big fish. Stay in the water. Stay near your baptism. And so every time you come in, what we're trying to say is, what God did to you in this baptism is divine. God is at work, and he gives you a gift, and he gives it with water. Why does he give it in water? Because you're flesh and blood. And when we get you wet, you know something is happening to you. Even babies who can't talk, who can't reason, push them under the water, I guarantee you they know something is happening. <laughs> you can see it happening. I mean, when that kid put her, el- put, her, put her sleeve in clear up and pulled it out, she knew something had happened for a range of reasons, including me and her mother. However, that's what we want. <laughs> because someday when her mother says, you shouldn't have done that, then she should say something like, but that reminds me of my baptism. And her mother can't ground her. You see how this works? 
<coughs> being a kid is all about having the right answers. So uh, three and four was, was about that it's God's work. And occasionally, not usually among Lutherans, occasionally you'll have somebody say something silly like, there are no sacraments or that's our work. But you know that's not, that's not what the scriptures say and that's not what Lutherans say. It's a divine work. Um, and then the cool thing was on the next page, faith needs something to believe. So you can, if you hear it in the right way, believe in the font. Not that you believe in the, you know, in, the, in the cast bronze, not even that you believe in the water, but you believe that Jesus puts himself in the water and he saves you there. Okay, so faith needs an object. That was um, the next page. And then what we did was, uh, the next thing was, number five, the font is a tomb. And so I gave you the example of the kid, the, the church where they bring the kids, you know, we have a kid being baptized at the next service. Imagine what would happen if we brought the kid in the next service. Imagine what would happen if we brought that kid in the casket. Imagine how that would set the tone for the day. People would never forget it. They'd also never come back. Uh, but they would never forget it. And they would know what we were saying. We would be saying, here's a dead person, which is actually what we say. Here's a dead person, a zombie. You're kind of the living dead. Always cursed to be that way until you get baptized. That's what we're saying. So the very first thing to say is um, <coughs> that baptism or that, that b- baptismal font is a tomb. Now I'm just at the bottom where it says baptism is the death of what we are naturally. You with me there? That's as far as we got last week. The first sermon I ever preached for a funeral was um, for an elementary grade school teacher. And I preached on um, the difference between small letters and capital letters. And, and here's the deal. When you die, it's not that big a deal because you've already done it once. It's like Joe Paterno when he tells his guys, you know, don't spike the ball. I want people to think you've scored a touchdown once before, right? You act like you've done it before. When you die, you should act like you've done it before. Because what happens in the tomb is you actually die your death with a capital D. You die the death that would send you to hell. Your first death is the one that will send you to hell. So if you can think about it this way, what the church is trying to do is to get you to have your first death before you actually die from a heart attack or get hit by a car. We're trying to get your first death out of the way. Romans 6.3, if anyone has been baptized with Christ, he's been baptized into his death. If If Christ died, you died. So we're trying to get your death out of the way now so that you can live and then when you have that small interruption that's called something like an aneurysm or, you know, um, going down in a plane crash, when you have that small interruption, you say, oh, well, then it'll be on to the next thing. Now, of course, death isn't that easy, and we try to help you with that by, for example, today we're going to anoint this child, and when that, whenever that child's sick, we're going to go anoint her again, and sh- when she comes to death, a good pastor will anoint her again, and she'll smell the fact that her baptism is saving her, that she already had her big death, and now you can have her little death. I've often told you the story. This is exactly what Cardinal Bernadine was saying when he was dying of pancreatic cancer, when he stopped all his treatment. He said, you know, death is my friend. I've already died once in baptism. Death is my friend. Death is a door to somewhere else. So the very first thing to say is that font is like a tomb. Now, Now, I should have put up... I should have put up the picture of old Jim Butcher in that font. <laughs> you ever seen the Butchers? They're huge. 
I mean, if you ever get in a fist fight, take all the butchers and let the other guy have the next pick. I mean, but you could take all the butchers and put them in the font and there would still be room for the grandkids. I I mean, it's huge. Why? Because it's as if you you could be buried. You could actually be buried in that font. Okay? So um, I give you this then from the large catechism. There are two parts, being dipped under the water and emerging from it. They indicate the power and effect of baptism. So a big font tells you what's going on. It talks to you, which is simply the slaying of the old Adam. You should be familiar with that small catechism. Your original sin, your damaged nature, right? And the resurrection of the new man. And now we're moving into new stuff. It's not just a tomb, but a womb both of which actions must continue our whole life long. Thus, a Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism. So, Luther says in the small catechism, in the morning when you wake up, make the sign of the cross and say, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Why do you say that? Because you were baptized. And it goes with this where he says, your, whole, your baptism is a daily baptism. <coughs> so, Every morning, no matter how you feel, you feel good, you feel bad, it doesn't matter how you feel. You wake up in the morning, you say, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Amen. Which is to say, I'm baptized. You put the sign of the cross right on yourself. You trace it on yourself. And you know that great um, thing from John Chrysostom where he says, once you've had the sign of the cross put on you, whenever the devil comes to tempt you, he has to turn his eyes. I mean, the the old thing in the vampire movies where they hold the cross up, that's actually true. I mean, that's actually true. If you talk to priests, it's why priests bring, it's why pastors bring a crucifix when they come to visit you when you're sick. It's if anybody's engaged in the demonic, you always bring a crucifix because that shames Satan. It shames him because he can't bear to look at it. So Chrysostom says, you know what the cool thing is? You always have that. You have the cross on you. Three or four times today, we're actually going to touch the child in the baptism Right after the exorcism, depart you unclean spirit and make room for the Holy Spirit in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We put the cross on him again at the Our Father. We anoint them after the baptism. So anytime you put that on you, it's, it's, uh, it, it, shames, it shames Satan not to be able to kind of come after you directly. Just as an aside, um, in terms of things of the demonic and things of temptation, The trick with, um, you know, kind of the best thing ever said, C.S. Lewis, when he said, um, when it comes to demons, best not to know too little, best not to know too much. Which is exactly what Luther said. You know, there's this famous story of Luther waking up one night and um, the devil's sitting on the bottom of his bed. He wakes up and says to him, it's only you. Then he rolls over and goes back to sleep. (laughs) See, that is exactly the right attitude, which is, I know you're here, but I really got bigger fish to fry. I mean, but, but you, you shouldn't make the mistake of, uh, we once had a vicar, we went to do a house exorcism, um, and we said, I can just remember Pastor getting so clearly given the instructions, uh, you know, okay, I mean, he was, he was, he was uh, the president for that thing, and he, he, as we got out of the car, we said, we don't know what we're encountering, and I'll just tell you what was happening in the house. The mirror was talking. Um, there was all sorts of rustling sounds in the basement. The doors were slamming. The dogs were going crazy. Um, and the family called us and said, you know, we just, you know, we don't know what's going on. We're like, okay, we'll come and bless your house, which is, in effect, a house exorcism. So we said to the vicar, I mean, we pull up. We're all there together. We're vested. We get out. We light the incense. We grab the crucifix. And I can just so clearly remember Pastor Gating saying, we're all in it together. 
We stick together. Nobody go in till, till I give the word. We look up and the vicar has rushed into the, cro- into the house all by himself. We're just like, I mean, I just turned and said, if he doesn't come out, it's not our fault. <laughs> I mean, some people are just beyond help, you know. Um, but I did say, <laughs> it was interesting because I was telling John Kleine that story, and he actually said he, just had a, he, just, he had just done an exorcism on a medical clinic. He had a good friend who was a doctor who bought a clinic, and all kinds of things were happening in the clinic. Um, and the long and the short of it is they came, they sort of isolated the room in which things were happening. Um, and he said, you know, a deep chill in the air. Um, I said, you didn't go alone. He said, and then he looked at me and said, never go alone, which is, which is true. You never go alone. Um, but, he, but later they found out um, that the previous guy had used it as an illegal abortion clinic. So the whole place was sort of demonized. Um, and that's, you know... So here's the thing, uh, you know, not too little, not too much, but if you want to be free of that, I mean, the first thing, I just is just, so I'm talking about nothing that I wrote down, except it's everything I wrote down. Here's the deal. If you have trouble in your house, if you have trouble in your family, almost all, if you have trouble, and I'm talking about this demonic kind of trouble, I can just tell you it's always a couple of things. It's um, illicit sex, it's child abuse, um, it's pornography, it's drug use. There's always something that sort of flings the door open. And here's the other thing. If it's your neighbors, it can kind of wash over onto you. Um, oftentimes, it sort of pollutes the neighborhood. Uh, so what happens is, is then the pastor comes and cleans your house. It was really interesting. I, you, I mean, we don't talk to you about this, but we probably do two or three of these a year. Um, one, we did a house where there had been uh, a great deal of trouble and also a suicide. And so... Um, we actually went to the room where the suicide had happened. It was very, it was, it was dark. You know, it was a dark sense. Uh, but what was interesting is, is there were other problems throughout the family. One of the kids, in the midst of this, um, you know, starts talking on the phone. It's just the priest. There. It was really interesting because the kid was kind of trying to undo what we were doing at the very moment we were doing it, which is a, kind of a striking thing which then, you know, meets some level of resistance. You're kind of welcoming. You have this thing of, we're saying to the demons, you have to go. The kid is saying, won't you please stay? Or, the uh, last thing I'll say about this is, um, for some reason, I was flipping through some MTV thing the other night, and they had uh, th- this girl saying, I'm a Satanist. The guy said, why, do you, why are you a Satanist? And she said, because Satanism is the only religion that takes everybody as they are. Now, when you think about that, that's actually true. Satanism will take you however you are. Of course, the payoff is, right, your eternal soul. So, and that, that is the difference between Christianity. Christianity does say, the Lord takes you as you are and makes you something new. Satanism takes you as you are and makes you worse. But people often don't get the difference there. So you wake up in the morning and you say, I'm baptized. And then, as this says, and then the very next thing you do is confess your sins. Um, and, you know, obviously for Luther, when he talks about penance, he's talking about two things, going to your pastor and making restitution. Those things were contained in penance. Well, he says right here, I mean, we're going to read it in our thing that I say when I'm ordained, and then um, you say when you come, we're all going to live by this. So, I mean, look, this is what he says. You get up in the morning. um, It's our daily baptism, once begun and ever continued, (coughs) always purging. What is born in us from Adam irascible, spiteful, envious, unchaste, greedy, lazy, proud, yes, and unbelieving. That's what you are naturally. 
This corruption must daily decrease so that the longer we live, the more gentle, patient, and meek we become, the more free from greed, hatred, envy, and pride. So you see, you can't stay the way you are. Um, it really is about getting better and better, okay? Now, but don't turn the page, because otherwise um, you can cheat, and we would hate to have you cheat. John, can you give me um, the one of the font looking down? Not that one, although the, we can, oh, not that one either, but that, not, the next one, there you go. <clears throat> All right, so um, we go there to drown the old Adam. Where's Adam in the picture? Don't cheat. Where's Adam in the picture? He's there. Where is he? Any guesses? Nobody? Come on, you're better than that. Where? Uh, not quite. Hold on. Well, well, it's second Adam there. Hold on. Where's the first Adam? Uh, well, yeah, it is your reflection in the water. That's actually pretty good. True, truer, truer words never spoken. What day was Adam created? Sixth day, and everything was good. And then on the seventh day, the Lord rested. And then what happened? The fall, and everything spins backwards, breaks, devolves. And so the devil's number in Revelation is... Six, six, six. So you need a six. Your six is here in the grate. Six sides on the grate. You can count them when you go down. One, two, three, four, five, six. So you always put an atom number there because it reminds us that what gets drowned with the water splashing over all the time is your old Adam. Adam is always there. He's there, but what you say is there's no point in denying it it's like if we say to the people having all that stuff in their houses, hey, just forget about it, sleep well. Yeah, here's the thing, you can't deny it. It, it wakes you up at night. It, makes you, it blows across your face and it's cold. You, you can't deny it. It is what you, what you are. It is what I am. I wake up every morning and I think to myself things like, that idiot Gainig, how could he do such a thing to me? You know, things like that that need to be confessed. I mean, we've all got it in us. You knew it was coming. Uh, no, you're not. <laughs> I've got other work for you to do, young man. We've all got something to confess. That's your six. Now, Natty, how many bursts? Why eight? The eighth day, right. And so <laughs> you can't see them all here, but if you check, um, there's eight bursts. Jesus rose on the eighth day. Um, what other eight stories do you know? Circumcision happened on the eighth day. What other eights do you know? Noah, eight people in the ark. Except for when we had that St. John play and that 42 up there. <laughs> but, uh, like, stop at eight. <sighs> okay, whatever. We take the point. Um, uh, so, eight people in the ark, circumcised on the eighth day. What else? Yeah, eight sides to a steeple, which is very much like an eight sides to a font or eight sides to the altar rail. Resurrections on the eighth day. Very first one. When Let there be. How many in Genesis, how many let there be's are there? Eight. When God makes a perfect thing, he makes it an eight. Okay? Actually, I think, top of your head, eight gates on the walls of Jerusalem. I think I forgot to put that down. I think I have to go back and count. I think there's eight gates on the holy city of Jerusalem. 
So there's all these eights. God speaks eight times when he creates and makes everything perfect. There, when he makes things perfect again, flood, Noah's ark, eight people in the ark. When he makes a little child a perfect son of Israel, eight day, on the eighth day, he, um, uh, he has them circumcised. And Jesus rises on the eighth day. And from forever, <laughs> the church has said from Romans, if it happened to Jesus, it happened to you. That's what the Easter Vigil is. The Easter Vigil is just reading all the stories and we say, why is this night different from every other night? Because it happens to you. If you have Jewish friends and they have Passover, you know at some point, some child during the Passover says, why is this night different from all other nights? And then the father basically says, because now it happens to you. Right? This is your story. So when you come to the font and we drowned you here, Jesus drowns you here, what gets drowned is your old Adam, and you raise up into new life. And then the last piece of the puzzle is, why the circle? In the churches, you often have circles. Big rose windows above the altar come in a circle. Why a circle? No end. Thank you. Who said that? That was genius. No, no beginning and no end. And so a circle is always a sign of eternity. So basically, this is what the font is saying to you. If you get baptized here in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this part of you gets drowned, everything else comes to life, and you get to live forever with Jesus. Now, sometimes people will say, oh, ooh, ah, I can't be, I never, I can't remember what to say when I, my friends, and I, ooh, I don't know how to be a good evangelist. So the last hundred years for evangelism, what have they told, taught you to do? Memorize a script. Well, guess what? Then you can't remember your script, and then you can't finish. It would be easier for you to say to somebody, you probably need that. And then it's right there. What is it? It's, well, you've got this old Adam number six stuff in you, and that needs to be killed, but we don't want to kill you forever. We want to raise you back up into the eights, and the eights is all about um, living in the way of Jesus forever and ever. Amen. You get it? So the font has to talk to you. Um, can you give me the other font picture? Young man, uh, well, we'll do it this way. <laughs> this is the best card I ever got from Valpo. You know, Kirby went to Valpo. That is one of the, when I got that, whatever they were selling, I was buying on the other side. <laughs> That's Valpo's font. Do you know that? They don't use it. And I know why they don't use it, because it's too cumbersome. The congregation can't see it. But when you go to Valpo, when you walk in, go down the stairs on the, so you walk in like this to the sanctuary, there's stairs over on this side. Go stand at the top of the stairs. That's what you look down and see. That's their font. It's genius, whoever did this. And really what, what it was meant to do was for people to stand around here as the community all the way up and down. And you see you got all the things going on. They're gonna, there's the Holy Spirit above it. And um, you're going to be baptized into the eternity. And this is your community who's here. I mean, and that's, of course, you know, you're down in the depths of hell. And then you're brought up into the community of saints, and off you go to the altar. Isn't that genius? I mean, whoever convinced whoever was doing that to do that, God bless them, because whatever that cost, it was worth it. Except that they, I guess, don't use it much, which is a sadness. I mean, and, I, and they don't use it for practical reasons. But see, that's just a little, sometimes you'll say, you'll say about stuff, you know, is it worth it? Well, it's worth it if you use it. It's like having a Ferrari. If you, you know, if you drive it, it's worth it. You know, if it's in your garage, it may or may not be worth it. But driving it, it's worth it, you know. Um, can you kick to the next picture? <clears throat> the, 
one of the great problems we had as we're designing these things is we were kind of left to our own. We let our designer go very early in the process, so then it's just us sitting around. Um, I can tell you that for the amount of money that was going to be spent on these kinds of things, that really, it didn't keep me sleepless on a lot of nights, but I thought late into the night about many of the pieces. Um, and as you know, um, if you're not very good yourself, the best thing you can do is steal. Uh, so, um, so I'm looking through books, and I'm visiting churches and blah, 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 and I come across this page in a Rome travel book, and I'm looking at these things going, hmm, what these are, these are all domes in churches. This is actually in Rome. All of these are in Rome, but they're all over the place. So basically, <clears throat> this started with Brunicelli, and there's a... Um, Michelangelo was a big perfectionist of these sorts of things. So anyway, uh, you know, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm thinking, if I get this wrong, it's the end of me. How could I get it right? Steal from somebody really good. So ours is this one right here, which is the cupola, the dome, in the Church of San Rocco in Rome, built about 1580-ish or so, something like that. Um, in this time when they were perfecting all these geometric images. And you can see all the possibilities just on this one page. I mean, you can, you can see the eights, like, you know, here's the, something like the altar rail. I'll show you this later. I stole the altar rail from this as well. The altar platform is a dome from Rome turned upside down. I'll show it to you another day. Um, but you can see how the sixes and the eights all play out in the circles. And you regularly have the, the oculus, the eye at the top. God looks down at you and you look back at him. You know, if you've ever been to the Pantheon in Rome, that, you know, it, all, it snows in there from time to time because there's just a hole in the roof, but it's this genius thing that's this big dome that's built with no visible support. And you can just stand in the middle and look up. It's this whole notion of, you know, there's an eye of God that looks down on you. Anyway, um, basically, when, next time you go to Rome, go to the Church of San Rocco and look up, and you'll see your the medallion from your baptismal font. So that was kind of fun. Make sense? <coughs> I don't know if we have anything else there. Go one more. Yeah, so there you go. Now you can see the eight. Okay, I went off script there just a little bit. Hardly ever happens to me. Uh, let's see. <laughs> let's see where we are here. Ah, uh, yeah, so I'm on the page it says Adam's number is six. So you see that? And then um, the water is alive. Oh, yes, that bubbling water. It's not going to bubble quite as, quite, quite as much. We have one more. We have one more piece to put in that we'll take that'll make it shimmer rather than kind of bubble and pop, although the bubbling is good. But look at this. This is from the Didache. This is a manual for preachers on how to do the liturgy, probably around 80 AD. So this is within 50 years-ish, give or take, of when Jesus said to people, go make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Okay, so already, 50 years in, they're writing a manual for pastors on how to do the liturgy. And yes, there was a liturgy because they were Jews, and the Jews had a liturgy for a thousand years, and they just continued on with the liturgy, and they tweaked it as it would. So here it is. But concerning baptize, baptism, thus shall ye baptize. Having first recited all these things, the liturgical parts, the exorcism, the blowing underneath the eyeballs, the salt under the tongue, rubbing the oil on, you know all these things, right? So I'll just give, these are all in Luther's early baptismal rite, which we would do. See, you think when we, write, when we light incense during the 830 service without telling you, you think we've gone over the edge? Oh, no. Going over the edge would be at the baptism coming up, which is the first thing you'd do. You'd find the victim. You'd reach and pull the eyelid up and blow underneath it. That would be nice. That would get the child's attention. Why do you do that? 
to make the demons go away. It was the ultimate mark of scorn. At the time of Jesus, if you blew on a statue of Caesar, it would be like spitting in his face. That was a capital offense. You could be put to death for insulting Caesar by blowing on him. So what do you do? Hey, the kid's a little devil. What are we going to do? We're going to show him who's boss. So the pastor would lift up the eyelid just to let the devil know he was there. This is kind of a warm-up. Um, then you exercise him, put the size of the cross on him, you baptize him, you put oil on, and that's spoken of all over in Scripture. When you oil somebody, by the way, Jesse, from whom King David came, who was a type of Christ, had how many sons? When you don't know what to say, just say eight, because it's always right. Okay? Jesse did have eight sons, believe it or not. Um, and, you know, among them, David, who was, you know, king. And then we say of Jesus, king of the Jews and prophet, priest, and king. Yeah, he's a type of Jesus. Anyway, um, you also would then put salt under their tongue as a preservative. And you'd put oil on them as a spargus, as the mark, as the seal. Because when they'd come out of the water, they'd rub them in oil, which was both beautiful and medicinal and protective. It was like, it was like um, shielding you from the elements. And they would pull all the symbolism out of that. You're the anointed one. Prophets, priests, and kings were anointed. You know, Jesus is anointed before his death. You remember the woman that comes in and anoints him? You know, that was um, going to be the text when we were going to open two years ago. So... Uh, that really was the text we'd selected, where she brings the oil and breaks it, and then people say, oh, that's a waste of money. And Jesus says, hey, listen, there's everyday life, and then there's really big life. And when you do something really big in your life, you blow it out. So, you know, for example, when you anoint Jesus to his death, you blow it out. When you open a new church, you blow it out. Then you get your hands dirty with everything else. So anyway, all those were parts of it. And part of it was this, which is, you baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Look at this, in living, that is, in running water. Now, this is within 50 years of Jesus. Jesus was baptized in living water, in running water. He was baptized in the Jordan River. It runs slowly. It's shallow, and it, uh, you know, it does run. It runs downhill. Now, this doesn't mean if you didn't get baptized in running water, it's not a baptism. It does, you know, the scriptures say use water, but running water, why do you want to use running water? Because... Because why? It's alive, that's right. And it's alive because? Because? It's moving, and who's, who's making it move? Yeah, Jesus, is, the Holy Spirit is there. But when the Holy Spirit is there, Jesus is always there. And if Jesus is there, then the Father is there. It's like a big swim party, and you're invited. But they want to let you know they're home. You know, here we are, we're home. So when you look at that, if, you, if anybody ever says to you, if your kid ever says, why is that water bubbling? The proper answer would be, Jesus is having a swim. That's the answer. It's, it's living because Jesus is in there, okay? So, if you don't have living water, you can baptize in other water. And if you're not able in cold, that is, if your congregation is soft, then go ahead and warm it up. I'm always struck by how high. It feels so good. When the, I mean, I'm like, man, you want to stay. Have you touched the water? Touch the, it feels like, I'm like, that is good. That feels like you'd want to be baptized there. But if you don't have either, or if you have neither, Pour the water on the head three times in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see that? Isn't that great? So everything means something. The water ripples. It's alive. The Holy Spirit is there. God is swimming. Jesus fishes. All the stories. 
It's, it's round. It brings you eternity. How does it do that? It drowns your old Adam. What happens then? You rise up because it's not just a tomb. It's also a womb. It's where you get birth. It was very common in the first two or three hundred years of the church. They would actually um, build, a, you know, this is because you think the church is nice people and proper people and they'd never do this. They regularly built baptismal fonts in the shape of a uterus. There are stacks and stacks of them. You can look through slides. It's all over. It's all over. It wasn't a circle. It was actually a uterine shape to say to people, this is where you really get born. They're all over in the early, and they're, you could, I mean, if you could go to, the best ones are actually in Libya. They're all over the place. Because why? Because they wanted you to see, when somebody says to you, that's an odd shape for a font, everybody would go, you got to be kidding. Don't you know what happens there? This is where you get born again. So Jesus to Nicodemus, um, how do I get saved? You got to be born again. And then, of course, you have the strange Wheaton interpretation that's two things. There's a water baptism and a spirit baptism that came from people who don't know their Greek. There's one preposition that says born of, single preposition, two parts, water and the spirit, which means you get both of them at the same time. It's really, it's really a simple Greek thing that if people just read the English, they get all mixed up. You're born of, one preposition, water and the spirit. They both happen at the same place. Where's the spirit? In the water. What's in the water? The spirit's in the water. What does the spirit give? He gives Jesus. When Jesus is there, who else is there? The Father. He likes it. He likes to see you get reborn. So all of that's here. Now, I gave you the eights, um, eight times in creation, eight in Noah's Ark. You can actually, the New Testament makes that reference. That's not just us making that up. That's in 1 Peter 3.20. Just like Noah was in the Ark, that's how you got saved. Baby boys are circumcised on the eighth day. That's Genesis 17. And Jesus rising on the eighth day is John 20. So, Pelican, it apparently had been a custom for some parts of the church to baptize infants on the eighth day after their birth. So you not only wait, you know, you only bring them to a font that has an eight burst, you baptize them on the eighth day. But Cyprian, who was the bishop of Carthage, said, don't wait so long. I mean, that's great pastoral care. Because actually what he's thinking to himself is, gosh, what happens to somebody, you know, infant mortality in the early, in at the time of Luther, infant mortality was 70%. 70% of babies at the time of Luther died, which is why they'd always take you and baptize you the same day. So your mother would give birth, they'd take you to the church, and the pastor would baptize you. Same day. That's why he's St. Martin. That's why he's Martin Luther. He was baptized on the day of St. Martin of Tours. Crazy stuff, right? In the early church, they're saying, let's wait till the eighth day for the symbolism. Um, Cyprian says, gosh, you know, a lot of stuff can happen between day one and day eight. Now, there's two things going on there. One is, and sometimes when people come to us and they say, we want a baptism and we want it baptism on Christmas of you know, 2012 because my brother's coming home, that's the first time he'll be home from Afghanistan and he's the godfather. I completely get that. You can't leave your kid unbaptized for a year. That gets, that'd be like not feeding him for a year because you, know, you want your brother to see their first meal. Um, the other thing is, though, we also know that God is gracious and his default is to bring children home. So if should a child die before baptism, through no fault of yours or ours, Jesus brings that child home. I mean, Jesus is not standing with a crack and a whip at the door of heaven saying, hey, you know, chop, chop, you didn't, that's not Jesus. 
where the, the pastoral nervousness point is, is when people don't esteem baptism this highly. And actually, this advice from Cyprian is, and don't let your extras, salt, light, oil, exorcism, waiting for the eighth day, get in the way of the most important thing, which is the baptism. So don't let all the extras, you know. I mean, if you had a kid coming to baptism, don't hold him for a couple of years till we get the sanctuary finished. You get him baptized. Because baptism is a big deal. Everything else kind of talks about baptism, talks nicely about it. Here it is. Make sense? And that's always the pastoral thing for us. So when people want to delay, we always try to nudge them closer and closer, like the next Sunday. I, mean, I think you know the story of our twins, which is, you know, Kirby had, our kids were born on, the twins were born on Friday <laughs> late, and we're thinking, two kids, you had to get two days in the hospital. At that time, the, um, the insurance, uh, the standard in America was one day, it was when insurance was being tightened down kind of the first time. And, you know, we said to the people, you know, you, certainly she gets an extra day. And they said, well, you can stay an extra day, but if your insurance doesn't pay, it's on you. So we're like, yeah, okay, um, you know, we went home on Saturday and baptized the kids on Sunday. And then people said, you know, whose kids are those that you're baptized? Because we're in a small church, they're like, who's, they're, like, they're our kids. They're like, you horrible man. You had your wife come 48 hours after she gave birth to twins? Okay. <laughs> Trying to soften things up a little bit to keep the family harmony, Kirby. Okay, okay. You just get it all out. You know, there's other stories too if you want to hear those. Uh, so, but here's the thing: if you can come home, you can come to the water. Uh, you know, that's just it's just the way life is. So, you know, it's all pastoral; it all kind of works together. But it starts with the notion of you actually think something really happens in that font. If anybody says to you, "Why are you saved?" you say, "I'm baptized." If anybody, you know, every once in a while somebody has to fill out the thing for Wheaton College because they want to work there, and they, they want to, they, they, there's a question on the employment thing that says, tell the, tell the story of your s- salvation. Um, you know, for Lutherans, the right answer is, um, I got baptized, period, and move on. Of course, nobody ever gets the job. So we've learned to kind of <laughs> fudge that around a little bit now. Oh, well, you know, it's all about, you know, we've learned how to give. But the right answer is, I got baptized. Jesus baptized me. How, how do you know you're going to Jesus baptized me. Man, just so you remember all the stuff that's happening when you get baptized. Six is in water, and it's alive, and it's round, and it's eight, and we're going to live a new life, and wake up in the morning and make the sign of the cross, and let all that bad stuff go, and let all the good stuff come up. And that's all before you've even entered into church. Make sense? All that is going on. So if you come, and you're crabby at people, or you're not feeling good, or you're, let's say your wife pops off in front of other people, and you don't, you know, what, you know... <laughs> you'd say to yourself when you come to church, ah, oh, gee, she's baptized too, so I guess we'll just, uh, you know, if the Lord forgives her, I guess I will too, because faith agrees, and, you know, there's a reason it's at the door, because it reorients your whole life the moment you walk in. When you go in there, you're a different person. You're one family, and the rules have changed. All the old Adam stuff gets drowned as you go by the font, and all the new Adam stuff rises up, and that's how we treat each other. Make sense? And that's why it's at the door. You know, we got to keep this stuff. Now, Pastor Gaining and I um, are doing a, a marriage retreat up in Arcadia next weekend, so we won't be here, but Jonathan Mueller will be here to tell you all about his new pipe organ, so please come back. Um, now, Gaining and I have learned things over the year. For example, when we were invited to do this out in New York, um, after we gave our presentation and said, are there any questions, 
you know, the first guy who asked the question said, uh, how come you guys didn't bring your wives to the marriage thing? <laughs> like, uh, good question, okay. <laughs> so this time we're going to take our wives, actually. So we'll be, we won't be here next week, but um, Mueller, you're on for the pipe organ, right? Little update on the pipe organ, is that right? So, and don't worry, that pipe organ is going to be installed by Easter of 2011. So it's all good. <laughs> It's like everything else in construction. It is. I, I told you I was buying all. I bought watches for all the people who worked on the building, not our volunteers who are great. I bought watches for all the people, but with no hands or date, because it really doesn't matter. <laughs> well, what's the difference? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It's just, whatever, you know. So uh, just a little contract. Wrap it up. <laughs> Wrap it up. Let's get out of here. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.